The best practice for dealing with fraud is to prevent it from ever happening. This is Forensically Speaking, where host Jonathan Marks will help you understand the forensic side of compliance so you can move from detection to prevention in your compliance program. Here's your host, Jonathan Marks. Hello, this is Jonathan Marks. And this is my podcast called Forensically Speaking. And today we're going to talk about collusion, conflicts of interest, and corruption. As we might know, corruption can take many forms, but its root cause could often and does often include a conflict of interest of some type and possibly collusion. So let's get into it a little bit more. Let's look at the OECD and what they say. So the OECD states that conflicts of interest occur when an individual or a corporation, either private or governmental, is in a position to exploit his or their own professional or official capacity in some way for personal or corporate benefit. I think that's a really good definition, and I think it really sums it up very nicely. The most commonly known fraud involving collusion is bribery. And we all know that bribery riddles our headlines today. And when we talk about bribery, I'm talking about something given to influence a specific act to happen, whether given after an act has been performed or made to obtain a future benefit of information or some other type of data. Where there is collusion, there may also be a conflict of interest, okay? And while this type of fraud doesn't necessarily involve a distinct third party, it does involve the employee in a role other than as an employee. So in other words, acting outside of their employee capacity. This is where an employee colludes with another party, whether from outside or inside the business, to use his role as an employee to obtain a personal benefit. So I think that's really important to understand that they're using their role as an employee, but you know, at really acting outside of that capacity to obtain another benefit. Frauds that involve collusion usually occur off the books and records. And that's been my experience, and that's what's really touted in the profession. But frauds that involve collusion usually occur off the books and records. That is usually no activity needs to be concealed or hidden in the business records for obvious reasons, as I stated above. And when we look at the triangle of fraud action, we all say, hey, look, you know, a fraud generally involves the act of the concealment and the conversion. When you have a fraud, you have to conceal it. Yes, in this case, there is a concealment, but it's not actually happening on the books and records. It's really being concealed by the fact that people are not disclosing these potential conflicts of interest because had they disclosed them, and I'm hoping here, and I'm really hoping, you know, individuals that would get these conflicts and see these conflicts would be monitoring them accordingly and would pick up on any potential improprieties. So that's what really what we're talking about here. So based on that, it should be obvious that conflicts of interest can present, you know, obviously significant fraud and other risks for corporations, you know, other types of governmental agencies, fiduciaries, customers, and suppliers. And there are guidelines out there that really kind of get into this. And the one recent guideline that was issued is from the International Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, I think if you look at those guidelines, there's some really nice things in there. I'll go over them in a second. But I think those in consultation with an experienced fraud examiner such as myself can really help in crafting procedures, internal controls, policies, and training that really can help to combat these particular situations. So let's get into the ICC guidelines for a moment here. So recently, the ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce, released its guidelines on conflicts of interest. And again, when I talk about guidelines, and you'll hear me talk about this forever, 
they should really be viewed as a tool and can be applied to all organizations, public, private, and not-for-profits. So in particular, in not-for-profits, you know, where there might not be a real sensitivity related to conflicts of interest. Again, you know, I've seen frauds take place in all different types of organizations, but, you know, in in the not-for-profit scenario, this is something that can really be beneficial and really should be on the board of directors' radar and tracked and monitored accordingly. But getting back to the guidelines, the International Chamber of Commerce recommends that enterprises closely monitor and regulate actual or potential conflicts of interest or the appearance thereof of their directors, officers, employees, agents, and representatives, and make sure that they don't take advantage of these conflicts of interests for their own personal benefit or for the benefit of the corporation of some type. And goes back to the fundamental definition that I mentioned moments ago. But again, it goes back to monitoring. You really need to monitor. But in order to monitor something, it really has to be known or disclosed. And we're going to get into that in a second. And I mentioned that before. Section two of the guidelines, again, I would focus in on there as well. I would read them all. But section two provides, you know, among other things, it does provide a definition of a conflict of interest. I gave you the OECD definition. There is a definition in there with explanatory notes and descriptions of three types of conflicts with examples. There are other definitions out there other than the OECD and the ICC. The New York Stock Exchange corporate governance rules have a definition of conflicts of interest. I suggest that you read all three and really get a good understanding of really what they're trying to drive at here. There's Also a discussion in Section 3 of the ICC guidelines, the new guidelines on communication and training. Again, what I talked about before, you really need to communicate that conflicts of interest need to be understood, and you really need to understand what those definitions are. People need to understand what those definitions are. They need to understand what their disclosure requirements must be, you know, if in fact there is a conflict or a potential conflict of interest. And when you do this, it will help you in deterring, managing, and mitigating any conflicts. So again, you know, when we go back and again, looking at conflicts of interest, and we talk about that those being at the root cause of certain bribery and corruption matters, again, when they're disclosed and they can be monitored, it certainly helps. In this particular situation, you know, obviously, if somebody is committing a fraud, they're not going to disclose their conflict. They're going to try to conceal it. We've spoken about that, and that's why there's no real transaction on the books and records. And we're going to talk about those subtleties in a second, why it's very, very difficult to detect these. The other thing that I really wanted to call out with regards to the ICC guidelines of conflicts of interest is there are four dilemma scenarios in the back of the guidance, and I think they're fantastic to use as a training aid. So again, I would go through these and use them as you will. But again, you know, getting into people's minds, you know, exactly what a conflict is, and what they should be doing and going through this type of, you know, these types of case studies and training aids, I think are very, very important. So now let's get into the fraud risk of all of this. And I mentioned before, and I'll say it again, inherently conflicts of interest schemes are one of the most difficult areas of fraud to detect because again, they're not on the books and records. They're being concealed in other ways by not disclosing the fact that these relationships exist or employees acting outside of the organization or in a different capacity in order for them to gain, you know, personally. So let's get into some common conflict of interest schemes. There are two that I want to talk about today, the purchase scheme and the sales scheme. And the purchase scheme involves overbilling a company for goods and services by a vendor in which an employee has an undisclosed ownership or financial interest. So again, it goes without saying, 
you know, I own a janitorial company. I'm charging you $7 an hour more than everybody else. And I own that janitorial company. You know, the financial benefit that I inure or that I gain, that that's really where the fraud is occurring. So that's a purchase scheme. There's also sales schemes, as I mentioned, which involves, again, flipping around the underselling of company goods and services by an employee to a company in which the employee maintains a hidden interest. So again, if you were a janitorial company and you were buying cleaning chemicals and you worked for a cleaning chemical company and you were buying those chemicals from that company and you were selling them to yourself or having somebody else, you were colluding with somebody inside on selling them to you at a steep or ridiculous discount or way below market, again, that financial benefit it would be the fraud. So again, you could see by those examples that these are very, very difficult to detect because, again, employees either really don't understand the potential seriousness of having a conflict of interest or the company's policy relating to it. So they don't understand what it is. They don't understand what the responsibilities are. Others don't understand what it is. And so I think, you know, that's sort of one. And then two, as I mentioned before, when we talked about certainly the fraud is that the employee director or other parties deliberately trying to conceal or hide the conflict of interest. So in a purchase scheme or a sales scheme, as we mentioned before, they're hiding it because there's a personal gain or personal benefit for them. And we're making an assumption that there's actually a policy in place at the organization and they've been properly trained and they really know that their requirement is to disclose. So it's very, very difficult sometimes to avoid conflicts of interest, again, because they're secretive. Those financial benefits are more often than not hidden, albeit sometimes they are hidden in plain sight. There are certain ways, even though you're not recording these things in the books and records, there are could be outliers or anomalies or red flags within the books and records that would indicate that there might be something that could be amiss and should be investigated. But again, due to the very nature of these, they are very, very difficult to detect. I have found in over my 30 years of practicing that there are a couple of types of activities that can create a possible conflict of interest, and they include nepotism, cronyism, and self-dealing. And nepotism is the practice of giving favors to relatives and close friends, you know, often by hiring them and so on and so forth. You know, cronyism is the appointment of friends and associates to positions of authority without proper regard to their qualifications. And certainly the last one, self-dealing, which I think goes without saying, is a situation where someone is a position of responsibility in an organization, you know, has an outside conflicting interest and acts in their own interests rather than the interest of the organization. You know, obviously I've given you some scenarios today to think about. There's also, if you're a publicly traded company, there's Sarbanes-Oxley. And for those subject to SOX, in addition to sections 302, 906, and 404, which we all live and breathe on a regular basis, there are other sections of SOX that relate to you know, internal controls and corporate governance. And I'm bringing those into the fray here today and the discussion, because if you look at section 406, it talks about the code of conduct and ethics, and specifically 406C requires that you all U.S. listed companies maintain a code of conduct applicable to all directors, executives, and employees with the definition of a code of conduct, code of ethics, as stated in this section. And the New York Stock Exchange, which I mentioned before, corporate governance rules in their provision 10 require a company to adopt and disclose its corporate governance guidelines and code of business conduct and ethics. And when we talk about the code of conduct, and we're talking about the New York Stock Exchange corporate governance rules, we're talking about the code of conduct 
which must be publicly available and must define conflicts of interest, illegal and improper payments, anti-competitive guidelines, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act compliance, as well as acceptable dealings with employees, suppliers, customers, investors, and so on and so forth. So the reason that I bring this up and the reason I think it's important to mention if you're a publicly traded company is that your code of conduct must define conflicts of interest. So within your code, they must define conflicts of interest. And I think that's a good policy regardless. So again, I would take a look at that. So in concluding for today, there's a couple different things that I wanted to bring out. Conflicts of interest obviously can be problematic if not understood and managed appropriately. Conflicts of interest also, think about this, they increase the risk of bias and poor judgment because of the obligation of two or more competing interests and usually never end well for those that have consciously avoided the company's business practices and ethics. So again, making good decisions and having good judgment in an organization when you have a financial interest on the other side, whether it's either known or hidden, you know, could be problematic. These are the reasons why conflicts of interest need to be disclosed. They need to be managed appropriately. They need to be understood. And, you know, they do pose a real, real risk for companies. And when it comes to fraud risk management, overall fraud risk management for an organization, and again, you know, forensically speaking, you know, obviously, compliance and internal audit who are near and dear to my heart, really need to understand conflicts of interest and address them accordingly. They need to understand and build in controls, policies, procedures, testing. When they're out in different situations, they should be testing for them. They should be asking the right questions when they're conducting their interviews and so on and so forth. But again, since internal audit and compliance are really part of the monitoring function and do help with you know, maintaining order within an organization, they really do need to understand this as well. So it's not only the employees, you know, and directors, officers, and others understanding conflicts of interest is really, you know, having that built in or operationalizing this in a way where internal audit and compliance have tools within their processes and procedures in order to try to flesh these things out and make sure that they're not only disclosed, but they're being managed appropriately. And if they're not disclosed, ring fencing them in and seeing if there's any potential damage or any other types of issues. Last thing that I wanted to mention for today's podcast is that all conflicts of interest must be documented in writing. So in other words, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I might have a conflict of interest, get it in writing. This really, really helps if there's ever an issue because you can show whoever, whether it's the regulators or somebody else, if the company is really proactively dealing with these issues. If somebody's coming forward, they're coming forward for a reason whether it's due to the company policy, whether it's due to training, and so on and so forth. But really get these things documented and really make sure that they're properly looked at on a regular and ongoing basis and you know, make sure that there's proper monitoring place. And if you do have an organization where there is internal audit and compliance, use them effectively. My name is Jonathan Marks, and that concludes our session today on Forensically Speaking, where we talked about collusion, conflicts of interest, and corruption. Good day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Forensically Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and help us spread the word by leaving a review. 